And this morning, we actually have the privilege of hearing Dr. Craig Hazen, uh, who's going to be speaking. He is the founder and uh, director of the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University, which is my alma mater, the finest institution in all the land. And uh, he's here to share with us about um, just the, uh, the confidence we can have in knowing that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave and knowing the fact that Christianity is true. And so he'll be sharing a little bit about that. So would you join with me in welcoming Dr. Craig Hazen? There he is. Yeah. What's up? Thanks, Bill. Wow. Well, I've been here all morning. Do you know there's people here going to church at 745? Did you know that? I know. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, but I actually, uh, you know, I've been hiding in the back, and I came out this morning, wanted to sit front and center for that amazing uh, choir. That's a great uh, music team you have here, Bravo. Yeah. So I do find it kind of strange how you all favor the drummer, though. Yeah, is it? I mean, it's just, it's just a little weird. I thought I'd mention it. I mean, how many churches actually, you know, provide bulletproof glass? For the drummer, you know, the rest of the group has to sit out, you know, open to sniper fire, but the drummer is well protected. You clearly love him. It's nice. Yeah, I want you to come out to this Engage Reasonable Faith in an Uncertain World conference. This is something you don't get in your neighborhood very often. We're going to bring out some of the finest communicators and thinkers on really important topics like dealing with Islam and Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and dealing with the scientific skeptic, offering a... a how to talk about God uh, with people and do a, a, a solid case for the resurrection of Jesus. Some of, the, some of the big apologetics topics. Now, some of you are going, apologetics, what in the world is that? I run, I probably run a conference every weekend across the country somewhere, and we have sometimes huge halls filled with people who are coming to an apologetics conference. And it's not that unusual to have half the people go, I'm not even sure what apologetics is. God bless those people for showing up anyway. That's good stuff. Uh, but let me, let me take the mystery away. Unfortunately, it's an archaic term. It's an old term. It's a solid biblical term, but it's an old one, and it's morphed over time so that some people think, well, what, what I'm going to learn how to apologize for being a follower of Jesus? I don't get it. What's that about? No. Uh, apologetics simply means offering reasons for faith. Offering reasons for faith. Uh, the great apologetics verse would be 1 Peter 3.15. Be prepared always to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have, yet do so with gentleness and respect. That's what apologetics is about. It's not about being smarter than the other guy or winning arguments or anything like that. It's, about, it's, it's a very pastoral enterprise answering people's questions. Some people really kind of hope that Christianity is true, but they can't commit to it. I was like that as a young man. I remember going, yeah, it sounds interesting, but, you know, uh, it couldn't possibly be true. Turns out Christianity is true. And all of the evidence backs it up. All of the facts of the, the universe, both seen and unseen, back up Christianity. Because it turns out it's true. There really is a God who uh, created all of this so that we might have a love relationship. We shook our fist at God. We went our own way. And God provided a way back through uh, his son, Jesus Christ, his death on a cross and his coming back from the dead. Uh, this is a true story. It's a, the true story of all that ever was, is, or will be. And we're in possession of it. So we need to be able to 
articulate that and answer some basic questions about it. You'd be surprised how much power your just personal Christian witness is with being able to answer some questions in a confident, uh, accurate manner. It really is amazing what, what takes place. Uh, the Spirit moves. The, the Holy Spirit really loves sharp tools in the old toolbox, and we want you to become sharper tools. So that's what, the, that's what the conference is all about. Don't miss it. We're bringing in some of the finest thinkers and communicators. Uh, these, these guys are top flight in terms of their ability to communicate in an interesting and fun way. Uh, one of the speakers is Tim Muehlhoff, for example. Tim Muehlhoff is a professor of communications at Biola University and a, a very thoughtful uh, Christian apologist also. Uh, he's the guy, when he speaks in chapel for the undergraduate students at Biola, there's a line around the campus waiting to get into the gym to get a really good seat because he's that good. And so you're, you're going to love hearing guys like Tim Muehlhoff and Melissa Travis and Alan Schleiman and Don Hester and Phil Ward and others. It's just going to be a, a great time dealing with key issues. So check that out. Make sure you sign up today. You're, you don't want to miss this. Uh, just to get your appetite whetted, I did bring some resources uh, because we like the learning always to continue. Uh, these, are, these were selected by my staff as like the hottest items uh, and they bundled them together in some sort of special deal out at the resource table, so check that out. But let me highlight a couple of these. Uh, the first one is a book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Grace. I don't know if you've heard about this book. You've probably heard about his other books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and so on. Uh, but this one has, has been judged... Uh, uh, by a number of uh, thinkers that this is probably his best book yet, The Case for Grace. He turns his journalistic skills toward telling the stories of some dramatic transformations in people's lives. It's, it's really a compelling book. It's very hard to put down once you pick it up. So check that. This is part of the set I brought. Uh, oh, and I'm, the reason I carry this around is I'm, I'm actually uh, featured in chapter four. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm actually uh, squeezed in between the executioner and the drug addict. So that's where I fit. I'll, I'll let you figure out what that's all about. Uh, then a book I wrote called Five Sacred Crossings. It's a novel, so it's a fast-paced mystery story that I think you'll really enjoy. And uh, now I'm an academic person, and I've written academic books. Yeah, and no, nobody reads those. I mean, you know, I'm, you're happy if five scholars read, maybe one of them writes a, a scholarly review. Uh, so my scholarly books sit in the bottom shelf of research libraries gathering mold, you know? And so I decided I'm not going to let that happen in the next book, so I wrote a novel. I did this about 10 or 12 years ago, and it's still going strong. Uh, people write me every week about the characters and the plot and the intriguing notions I presented them uh, on how Christianity is unique and set apart from the other great world religious tradition. So uh, it's a novel, and uh, I'm just thrilled at the impact. Let this be a little bit of an encouragement to those of you who have some creative juices, like you, you love to write, and uh, you'd like to write a novel or a screenplay or a stage play. Maybe you're a musician or a visual artist. We actually need you. We, we need you to carry these important messages through to the general public in, in, in really intriguing modes of communication. And you know, those of us who are in the scholarly realm, we provide a lot of the raw material. Uh, people really aren't going to read our books. They're going to write the books you uh, write and the movies that you make that include some of these great ideas. So be encouraged if you have creative uh, juices in you. Another book called World Religions and Cults 101 does go along a little bit with the theme of the, 
conference engage because we'll be talking about uh, Islam and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and this covers things like Buddhism and Hinduism as well you know those religions you've always heard about but have wondered what they're really about this is a wonderful first step into those religions so you can understand something about them and be a little bit more informed when you know they knock at your door so check that one out oh I saved the best for the last this is a this is a DVD of a debate on the existence of God that took place at Biola University. We got uh, our very best debater, William Lane Craig, who's one of our faculty members, a brilliant Christian uh, philosopher, and probably one of the best debaters we have on our team, right? And we set him up to debate Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, in his day, was the top uh, atheist debater. He was just so smart and so clever and so funny and interesting that everybody was a little bit afraid to, to debate him. So we finally set this up. William Lane Craig against Christopher Hitchens. And packed gymnasium, high definition cameras rolling, streaming it out to the internet. How did it turn out? Uh, well, uh, you only have to read the atheist blogs to find out how it turned out. And the atheist blogs were saying things like, oh my gosh, what happened? Christopher Hitchens was spanked like an errant school child, you know. <laughs> Therefore, I carry a box of these around in my trunk <laughs> to, to hand out to every atheist or agnostic I bump into at the Little League game, the post office, and grocery store, and so on. And they get very excited because we actually put Hitchens' name first. You know, Hitchens versus Craig. Like, Christopher Hitchens, this is going to be good. And they take it, they go home. They, they never talk to me again, so I'm not sure exactly what happens. I think they, I think they plug it in and watch it and go, uh-oh, you know, what happened? So, so this, is, this is your best friend. So, so yeah, these are in a set out there. Uh, you can buy them individually if you want. Check them out. Enough commercial. Good to be with you. This is, this, by the way, this, this church really has something wonderful going on. Uh, I go to a lot of churches, so I can tell when I walk into a place, there's like a spirit here that's uh, really remarkable. Keep up the great work. You guys are going to do, and in fact, set your vision much bigger. You can handle it. You guys have something going here. You guys are going to make a big ruckus worldwide. So, and I, I hope you, yeah, I, I fully expect that. So we're having an apologetics conference, and I run an apologetics program, so I bet you won't be surprised if I have an apologetic core to my message. And it, it really is this. How in the Bible does God demonstrate, which is an important apologetic tool, you demonstrate his identity and the truth of his word? How does he do that? And how often does it happen? Is it a biblical theme? I'm here to say, yes, it's a biblical theme. In fact, I, I had the little exercise one time of reading from Genesis through Revelation in my comfortable Bible reading chair at home. Uh, looking just with special attention focused on how God demonstrates his identity and the truth of his word constantly. It is a major biblical theme. He loves to show us that it's true. He wants us to know that these things are true. And that's basically what apologetics does. It, it offers reasons for faith so that people can have their questions answered and they can move closer to the cross with uh, good faith and, and good thinking. God loves to demonstrate his identity and the truth of his word. Now, it's very difficult to pick out an example to demonstrate this. Uh, there's just so many wonderful examples in the Old Testament alone. It's really hard. So let me, let me do some hard editing, and I'll bring it down to one solid Old Testament example that I love the most. This is, this is just such a wonderful example. 
couldn't pass this one up, even though there's so many. Uh, this has to do with First uh, Kings uh, chapter 18 and Elijah squaring off against the prophets of Baal. You probably know this story well. Uh, this, this is quite dramatic. You know, I love Elijah, by the way. He's a great prophet. He's not a writing prophet like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and uh, Isaiah and so on. He's a, he's a doing prophet. You know, people just write down stuff about him because he's such a bizarre character, you know. Uh, I always picture him having hair going out like this, you know, one eye bulging out. And, you know, he's wearing ragged clothes. And he's, he's got a sword on, for goodness sakes. You know, he's marching around the desert eating bugs and things. And then, could you imagine when he wandered into town, you know? The little junior high kids would hide behind the bushes, you know, jump up and throw rocks at him, and he'd snarl at them. He was just a great figure, you know? A bit, a bit on the crazy side, I'm sure. So get this. He uh, decides to give Ahab, who'd gone a very bad direction, a bit of a bad time. In fact, let me set this up by starting in 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, starting with verse 29. This is the setup. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over, over Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit <clears throat> the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. <laughs> so, so you make it into the Bible, and this is what it says about you. Could you imagine? Oh, for goodness sakes. Uh, he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Oh, my goodness. So this is a huge offense to the, to, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with so many people falling away and following foreign gods. Exactly the thing they were not supposed to do on the top of the list of things they were not supposed to do. So it's a huge offense to the God of Israel. This obviously is going to bother a prophet of God like Elijah. So in chapter 18, the story continues. Chapter 18, verse 17. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Why he did this, I don't know, but check this out. He goes to meet Elijah. Verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've, you've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. <laughs> so it's going to be like 850 against Elijah. I, lo I love the odds of that. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the people and the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. I love the stark contrast. It's like, no more middle ground, people. Look, quit wandering around some weird spiritual fog. If, if Yahweh's God, you have to serve him and pay attention to him. If Baal's God, go follow him. I love that. 
We don't see that kind of stark contrast very often. So you know what happens next. Elijah lays down kind of the rules for the, for the little contest. They all march up Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal and Asherah, you know, all 850 of them, they're going to go first. So they got a nice crowd of prophets over there. So they build a lovely altar here. And they find a brilliant slab of meat and they put it on top there. Very attractive, I might add. I think Baal should really go for this one. So uh, then uh, they get to go first. It's early in the morning, in the cool of the day, and they begin calling out to Baal to send down fire from heaven to consume the offering, proving that he is the one and only true deity and so on. And so they start chanting and dancing, you know, uh, calling out to Baal. They, oh, they may, uh, I have no idea how they do this, but um, you know, work with me. So they're working it, and uh, you know, they're feeling good, and the sun's getting higher in the sky, and there's 850 of them, so they can send in substitutes occasionally, and they're so they're working. Uh, nothing's happening. It's been a few hours now. We're kind of working up a sweat. It's getting hot. Uh, flies are now gathering on the meat. This is the only thing happening, and uh, so they're working harder. Now, Elijah's over here watching all this. I always picture him sitting in like one of those recliner lawn chairs, you know. He's got his feet up and he's, he's drinking a glass of iced tea with a little umbrella in it. And he, occasionally he moves the glass to yell at them like, hey, you know, shout louder. Your God's probably asleep. <laughs> hey, hey, louder. He's probably on the toilet now. <laughs> I kid you not. That's the kind of raucous language there is in the text. So they're looking at Elijah, they're working, it, and they're working up a sweat, and nothing's happening. Their time is running out. They don't got all day, they have half a day. So they're working it, and, and the text says they're getting a little desperate, so they pull out swords and spears, and they start cutting themselves. Maybe, maybe showing a little blood to Baal will get things going. So you can imagine they're in the heat of the sun, they're, they're bleeding out a little bit, and they're healthy. And, it's not going on. Pretty soon they start collapsing. There's a, there's a pile of prophets here. Uh, and, and finally, uh, time's up. It's over. All right, they had their shot. So it's Elijah's turn. He, he builds a, a lovely altar over here and puts a nice slab of a meat on the top. He, he has some people dig a trench around the altar. And people came in and poured buckets of water over the meat. And it ran down and filled up the trench. I was teaching this story to some fourth graders one time, and I said, why do you think the prophet Elijah had somebody bring in buckets of water to pour over the meat? One kid immediately raises his hand, so I called on him, and he goes, uh, uh, to make gravy. <laughs> That's a, yeah, yeah, that was a keeper, you know, that comment. So, so the water runs down, it's filling up the trench, and uh, Elijah says a prayer. Here's, here's the prayer he said. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I always picture him after the prayer, just kind of winks at God. And, you know, down comes fire from heaven, lifts up the, the offering, laps up the water in the trench, probably takes up a couple of prophets of Baal for good measure. It's a definitive demonstration. Yahweh's God and Baal is not. There's, there's no confusion here. Uh, now, 
Could you, could you imagine that after this, all of Israel's watching this, you know, not every person in Israel, but, but, but representatives of every tribe were there. And could you imagine them walking away from this little exercise, going, ha, huh, you know, religion's a tricky thing. Who can really know about that stuff? It seems to be all, all about what goes on inside you. You either believe that stuff or you don't. You know, that's what religion really is all about. No, that's not what they were doing at all. They were running to caves to hide and clefts of rocks because they knew that Yahweh was real and he was a little bit mad at the situation. So, definitive demonstration. God loves to demonstrate his identity and the truth of his word. And oh, there are so many wonderful Old Testament illustrations of this. He wants people to know in a definitive manner. When you roll into the New Testament, it's a whole new ballgame. I mean, if you think it's good in the Old Testament, by the time you get to the New, it's almost over the top. In fact, I remember as a young man reading the New Testament going, wow, these guys are really obsessed with the idea that this really happened. You know, uh, Here's some examples. 2 Peter 1.16. 2 Peter 1.16. Peter writes, we did not follow cleverly devised stories. The Greek word there is muthoi, myths when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John takes it a bit further. 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It's as if these apostles want to grab the people they're writing to and shake them. No, don't you make a mistake even for a second that this was some weird feeling or mystical dream or ecstatic experience. No, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. This is what we're talking about. It's real. They're obsessed with that. By the way, you don't find anything like this in uh, religious texts from the other great world religions. You just don't find this kind of language. In fact, uh, let me demonstrate this by reading uh, the writing of another apostle who was kind of obsessed with this idea. In fact, I, I consider this passage to be the strangest passage in all of religious literature. And, and my, my doctoral work is in religious studies, for goodness sake, so I got a chance to really study all the great world religions. So this one stands out as something so odd. I say it's it's the strangest passage uh, ever in major religious literature. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read this to you. Paul writes this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith interesting. He continues, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. The Apostle Paul basically set Christianity up for a huge test. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, if there's no good reason to believe that Jesus came back from the dead, if it's only about our feelings, then guess what? 
the Apostle Paul's encouraging us to go do something else for goodness sakes because we're wasting our time here. Wow. You don't find things like that in other great religious literature. These people not only thought this really happened, they knew it happened. They knew it. And they wanted to make sure they communicated that very, very clearly that Christianity is about knowledge. It's not about blind leaping. See, most people think, if they find out you're a religious person, uh, they think, I guarantee you, this is in the cultural water we drink. If they find out you're a religious person, they basically think, oh, well, then you've simply blindly believed something. What you've done is you've gone out to the edge of the religious abyss, you've closed your eyes, and you've leapt blindly into it. Yeah, good for you if that, that meets your needs. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes you've been at work and maybe you had a Bible out on your desk, you know, heaven forbid, and somebody walks by, some, some skeptical coworker walks by, sees the Bible, goes, a Bible? Oh, I didn't know you were a religious person. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? Good for you. Good for you. You know what they mean by good for you. They're like, good for you. You need that kind of thing. You need that blind leaping aspect of life. I'm more of a science guy. But you, you need your fairies, your leprechauns, your unicorns, your whatever to get by in life. I totally get it. Good for you. Oh, drives me nuts. Here's, here's another example. Here's a definition of faith that is just uh, mind cringing. Check this out. Uh, it comes from a... a, a an engineering professor at the University of Southern California. He wrote an editorial piece for the Los Angeles Times. And I printed it out, and I've been carrying this around for a while, but he, he felt uh, obligated to help uh, we who are religious people understand what faith is all about. You know, so here's, a, here's an atheist skeptic from the engineering program at USC helping us understand faith. Here's what he thinks faith is. You ready for this? <clears throat> faith is unwarranted belief. Faith is belief without evidence or despite evidence to the contrary. Faith occurs when a person believes that something is true even though he suspects it's false, right? It takes large doses of such faith to support the very existence of casinos, psychic hotlines, astrology columns, mall Santas, and most organized religions. Is that what we signed up for? Oh, for goodness sakes, this is just tragic. You know, my goodness, uh, what he's really saying here is faith equals blind leaping, right? Faith equals blind leaping. Another way to put it is faith has no knowledge. Faith has no knowledge in it. Knowledge and faith are opposites. Is that how it works? I got to tell you, folks, that is not the biblical picture of faith. You know what faith is in the scriptures? It's trust. That's what it is. It's trust. I trust Jesus for my salvation. I think, I think he's, he's really the only way. So I tr put my trust in him. Now that has nothing to do with the knowledge base for that trust. I trust him, but my trust sits on a firm foundation of knowledge. I have excellent reason to believe that he actually existed, that he was killed on a Roman cross, and that he came back on the third day. I think, I think it is historically a slam dunk. Listen to this. It's historically a slam dunk that Jesus was alive at point A, 
dead at point B and alive again at point C. I think we can know that. The evidence is clear and it's compelling. In fact, next week during the conference, I'll give at least a one-hour presentation on the evidence for the resurrection, which I know will blow your mind because you've never heard it before. You're thinking, well, wait, I read evidence that demands a verdict one time. No, you haven't heard this. We've, we've come a long way from then, from that point. And uh, we can even make our case in the, in the most dire situations on secular university campuses. Um, and so the, the resurrection of Jesus is the best attested fact of the ancient world. It really happened. That's why I like to use the word knowledge about it. Not just some spiritual knowledge. I'm talking about objective, investigative knowledge to know that Jesus came back from the dead. But that's the kind of faith we're talking about. It's trusting a God, and I have excellent reason to believe he exists and that Jesus is his unique son and the savior of humankind. So this has nothing to do with blind leaping. Christianity invites people to walk into it with their eyes wide open, asking hard questions all the way. Jesus was a big fan of demonstration, right? He was a big fan. In fact, along the resurrection lines, he said uh, to some skeptics one time, you know, he was always being cornered by the Jewish teachers of the law, right? When he'd walk through town, they'd go, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. And what they meant by a sign was, show us some demonstration so that we will know that you are the Messiah, right? And how did Jesus respond? Here's a paraphrase. I'm not going to show a sign to a bunch of rascals like you, except for one. Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. The resurrection of Jesus was going to be the great sign for that generation and for ours. And we've got the evidence to demonstrate this. So make sure you come out next week and hear that. It's, it's vital. I mean, if, if Jesus actually conquered death for us and we're all going to die, it seems to me we should all have a really strong argument uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. And the, the, the scriptures are brilliant, but, what, but they come under such assault. We need to be able to uh, support them in vital ways. And we've got that. We've got that. In fact, in some ways, we're like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, right? We have this knowledge base. Uh, she had the ruby slippers, and she just needed to know how to knock them together three times. We've got a knowledge base that we can make work for us, too. So Jesus was a big fan of demonstration, but my favorite example of Jesus demonstrating the truth uh, of his identity and the truth of his word uh, probably comes from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Um, I don't need, you don't need to turn there. I have this thing memorized. Uh, in fact, I could actually present it to you through interpretive dance, if need be, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, in fact, tonight I'll, I'll break out my leotard and do just that, you know, for the evening service. Oh, maybe not, but Mark chapter 2. Jesus is coming to Capernaum. Now, this is a big deal. You see, Nothing happens in Capernaum. There are no concert halls or sports stadiums or video games or multi-screen movie theaters. There's nothing. So when a guy like Jesus is coming to town who's known to be a spellbinding itinerant preacher and a guy who can, you know, uh, cast out demons and heal people and multiply loaves and fishes, this is a big deal. I guarantee you, you get there early and you get a good seat, right? And so that's the setup of this text in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is coming to Capernaum, and it says Jesus is teaching in a home, and it's jammed full, and there are people standing out in the street, craning their necks, hoping to hear what's going on 
inside. So it sets it up, and then it shifts focus a little bit, doesn't it? It, it takes us to look at four guys. Love these guys. Now, there's probably guys like this all over this room. But I love these guys. They, they're going to go hear Jesus, but they go, wait a minute. Uh, let's go get our friend the paralytic. Because rumor has it, Jesus can heal people. So I love the compassion they have. They run down and get this guy. They put him on a mat, right? He's paralyzed fellow, so they have, they have to carry him. They carry him to where Jesus is, and they go, oh. They can't get near the place. But here's what I love about these guys. They're undaunted by this. They, they find a way to get this guy up on the roof, right? Now, the text doesn't say how they did that. Uh, I'm imagining two throwers and two catchers, you know? <laughs> or maybe some sort of rope and pulley system, you know? Well, we'll have to wait for Mel Gibson to make a movie about it to find out how it really works, you know? So they get this fellow up on the roof, and they start to, they start to dig through. That's how they're going to get him inside. They're pulling up tiles. Poom. Poom. They're, they're digging through. You know? Could you imagine the scene inside as the ceiling is shaking? You know? And, there, and there's dust falling. And a leaf. And suddenly, a little beam of light breaks through. Now, the light is hitting all the dust in the air. And so it looks all spiritual and ethereal and spooky and so. The people who were there were like, oh, I'm so glad I got here early, you know. <laughs> the hole gets bigger, more dust is filling the air, of course, and a head pops through. Looks around, pops back up, and, and the hole gets even bigger. Dust is starting to really choke the place now. Light's pouring in, kind of blinding some people. As if this is not crazy enough. Moments later, this hole that's been created in the ceiling begins to give birth as this poor man, probably wrapped in his mat with a rope on it, they're stuffing him through the hole. Pop! This guy's holding on to the rope. He's spinning around. He's, he lands and dust flies up. Oh, people are choked. There's light pouring in. Oh, and nobody can see anything. It's mayhem in there. It takes a moment. Uh, the, the dust begins to settle. And as it settles, you can see foreheads looking uh, through the hole at the top. But as it settles, um, there's everybody leaning forward, looking at Jesus. What's the rabbi going to say about this? You know. <laughs> now, what does he say? When the dust finally clears, people can breathe, Jesus points to the man sitting right in front of him and on the ground says, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You, you have the same kind of looks on your face I think they did, kind of like, I mean, the people in the room were probably like, uh, can, can, can he do that? I don't know. You, you think he'll make us lunch? I'm hoping so. You know. now, now, it does say that there are a couple of Jewish teachers of the law in the back of the room you know, who, are, who are thinking, wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, they were actually on to something there. I'm glad the text mentioned that. You know. uh, but everybody's looking bewildered. I mean, they're not that thrilled. Why are they not leaping to their feet saying, what a happy day. This man's sins are forgiven. Oh, isn't God good? Why, why were they not doing that? Because if sins were actually being forgiven, that is an invisible spiritual act, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's no LED light in your forehead right here that, that starts blinking. You know, when, when your sins are being forgiven, you know? 
<laughs> like erasing a hard disk or something. You know, there's, no, there's nothing like that. There, you can't go to the doctor and have the state of your sins assessed physically. You know, like there's some, there's some probe and they, and, they, and they plunge it into your thorax. You know, oh, you're all right. There's nothing like that. You have to trust the person who's saying your sins are forgiven, right? So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're, they're not leaping to their feet happy about this. Let me, another example. Say the door opens in the back of the auditorium here and in walks a very tall man with a, with a white robe on. He's got a beard. He's got a hat of some sort, a staff and some sandals. Uh, he comes in. He looks like Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings movies. You know, Gandalf the White. You know, he, he comes in. Maybe he's got some, some disciples following him. He walks down here. Uh, by the way, this is completely plausible in Los Angeles. Okay, so <laughs> I tell the story in Los Angeles, and they go, oh, you know, oh, I saw that last week. You know? <laughs> so, the, so the guy comes down, and he walks up here, and he pushes me aside because he has a very important message for you. He pushes me aside, and he steps up, and he says, and he says, hello. <laughs> Because that's what religious guys say for some reason. Or, or maybe, behold. <laughs> or maybe he really hits it out of the park, you know, lo and behold. <laughs> and he says to us, he says, my children, your sins, they are forgiven. <laughs> now, why aren't you inclined to leap to your feet and go, yay, Gandalf has forgiven our sins, but... Uh, what a happy day this is, you know? Why are you not inclined to do that? Well, although there's a lot of theatrics surrounding it, and it's, and it's great fun and all, and you're glad you got there early to see all this, um, you don't know if Gandalf for, can forgive your sins, you know? Well, Jesus was in that room, and he saw the look on their face. Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, and the, just the neutral look on their face, like, huh? Led Jesus to take the next step. And here it is. This is the crescendo of this pericope or this this particular gospel narrative here's the crescendo jesus says this so that you will know so that you will know so that you will know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins pick up your mat and go home and maybe for the first time in his life this guy gets to his feet he grabs his mat and he starts to walk out and people are backing up making way for this guy and the text in Greek in this chapter of Mark says, in the strongest la- words in that language, they were astonished. They'd never seen anything like this. Everybody in that room had excellent reason to believe that Jesus could actually forgive sins, even though it was an invisible spiritual act, because they linked it tightly with a, a dem- demonstrative miracle right in front of their eyes. He wants us to know. He wants us to know through miraculous events right in front of our eyes. He wants us to know on the basis of transformed lives, many of which sit in this room today and can give tremendous testimonies about the power of God, his identity, and and the truth of his word based on your experience. Uh, He gives us reasons to, uh, to offer to people through apologetics, offering reasons that Uh, that Jesus was a real historical figure, that he was killed on a Roman cross, and that he did indeed come back from the the grave on the third day, exactly as the text says. That the New Testament text is reliable, that God really exists, that we have a solution to the problem of evil, and so on. All of these things are wonderful demonstrations of the truth of Christianity, pointing at the identity of God and the truth of his word. 
That's why we're having an apologetics conference. We want to we equip you to be able to offer up reasons for faith, uh, demonstrate the identity of God and the truth of his word. Uh, so please do join us next week. Uh, you can sign up today. We'd love to see you next week. Now, let me close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our great King, what a joy it is to serve you. What a joy it is to know you didn't leave us stranded in our own time without a witness, but you left a tremendous trail of evidence back through history testifying to what you did on our behalf. I pray that we take that very seriously and that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us great vision to spread your word and, and to live big for you. And I pray for this wonderful congregation here in Brentwood, Lord, that you would grow them, that you would give them a tremendous vision for worldwide impact, that this church would play a role in one of the greatest revivals in human history that will emanate out from this place and join with other important Christian bodies. Father, bless this church. You said that in John 15, if we abide in you and your word abides in us, we can ask for anything. And that's what I ask for this church, Father, that you pour out your spirit and give them a vision for big things in the kingdom and that they'd play a role in the greatest revival we've ever seen in human history. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.